0: This podcast is brought to you by cyber attacks can be prevented. Checkpoint. You deserve the best security.
1: It's unholy. I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London.
2: And I'm Yunit Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv.
1: It's the summer. We are taking a summer break. And during these weeks, we're looking back at some conversations we have loved and a natural for this list. Is the episode we did with Ira Glass, the godfather of podcasting, a supremo in the field of radio, uh, the creator of This American Life, the animating genius behind so much of the best uh, speech radio to come out of the United States over the last three decades. Um, So, it was a great interview with him. We're going to talk about that in a second. But one reason why we're additionally delighted to include this among the conversations we have loved is that Ira Glass paid us a hugely generous compliment. He was asked by Vulture magazine recently to name the handful of podcasts that he loves and listens to, and in that very short list, was none other than unholy. He said that they kind of sum up what's happening in Israel that week, which, honestly, before I went to Israel, I really didn't have that much interest in. He said, I actually now feel like I understand things in a way that goes beyond the headlines because of them. They do a really nice job and they're really fun to listen to. Well, praise indeed, coming from uh, the doyen of speech radio. And it was, I think, an amazing conversation, Yonid.
2: It was. Even after the conversation we had with him, he took to Twitter as people sometimes do and he wrote that he felt like he was talking about things he hadn't talked about before. We were talking a lot about his Jewish family and were his Jewish uh, parents, because he started studying medicine, uh, and were they disappointed that he chose a different career? That's part of our conversation. We talked about, about a lot of other things about radio versus television, about what is happening internally in the United States and how much do Americans actually understand what is going on in Israel. Indeed, One of our, uh, yours and mine, favorite conversations, because it's not always that when three people enter this unholy uh, discussion, they kind of bounce off each other, I think, so well, like in this one, uh, which I really love. It it sometimes resembles a jam session more than it does an interview, um, but let's listen in. Ira Glass is the host, co-founder and executive producer of This American Life and is largely credited for heralding the podcast revolution, also dubbed godfather of podcasts in certain publications, also credited for reviving public radio, the first news program to win the Pulitzer Prize for audio recording, also Peabody Awards, Edward R. Murrow Award. To read the whole list, we'd need an accompanying podcast. But what might be occasionally overlooked was that he was a correspondent for a program hosted by Jonathan Friedland in the mid-90s. Did See, you the surprise,
1: that? the surprise on our face. <laughs> this was
2: a show for the BBC
1: called American Graffiti. And it came out in the 94, 95. And one of our correspondents was a cub report in Chicago called Ira Glass. Oh, my goodness. I, I'm afraid I don't remember this at all. What did I cover for you? You would do, I think, kind of slice of life stuff out of the, you know, the middle, the heartland, as in, it wasn't D.C., it wasn't politics, it was what was going on that week um, on your patch, really. I know, it's amazing, but you were on very regularly. But I, it was it, ninety-four, ninety-five. 95. what? Yeah, now you <laughs> don't remember this. We're not making this up, w- it really happened. I was... I was on the BBC. Yeah, it was a BBC show on what was then a new network called Five Live. It's still up and running, but it was a new show, new network. I mean, I, you know, you've left a strong mark on my memory. So maybe it wasn't <laughs> that regularly. But just tell me now, if we go back to the mid '90s, what stage of evolution was what you are famous for, and this American Life? What stage of evolution was that? Was that just a gleam in your eye then? What what, were you, what, what stage were you in that
0: development? That was just before I started This American Life, and so the things that we do in This American Life, I was very much doing in all my reporting for public radio in the United States, and I'm guessing in the reporting for you, which is I was really interested in how do you tell a story about that tries to capture everyday life, but do it with um, do it so it was like way more entertaining than public broadcasting usually is, Um, and and uh, and that meant just really trying to dig into. a uh, plot, like, like there would be a plot that would unfold, and there would be s- story twists, and and you'd be invested in some character, and and the characters would be three dimensional, and um, and just designing the whole thing so it had funny moments and emotional moments, and and so I was doing that in document. I mean, they weren't documentaries; they were they were stories on the on the daily news shows that National Public Radio, the American version of the BBC, has. So they sent me into a high school for a year. Uh, Taft High School to do stories on, on how they were trying to fix that school. And I would file every few weeks on just, like, how it was going. And there was a set of characters who were following throughout the year. And it bombed. It was a terrible—it was one of those things as a reporter. It was terrible for everybody involved, which meant that it was good for me <laughs> and, as the reporter. And then the following year, I did a school, a similar thing, in a school that was improving and really, like, remarkable to see. Like, they didn't have special money. They didn't have—it was just a very well-run school and a very— um, in a neighborhood where usually the schools underperform, it was fat, like just very smart people r- running a neighborhood school, and so and so again in that one we got to know characters and and at the same time I was doing things like I was putting uh, writer David Sedaris uh, onto Morning Edition. Uh, he would do these little commentaries that I would that I would produce and put music underneath, and those would run during the morning drive time show in the United States. So so like all the elements of things that later became this American Life were 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 bubbling up, uh, but I hadn't put them together in one show of my own. And honestly, I thought if I didn't get to it fast, somebody else was going to beat me to the idea. It seemed like such an obvious idea
2: because it's it's amazing, isn't it? um that it, like, as it is with many revolutions, right? that if they're successful, it's kind of difficult to remember what what happened before. But I mean, the way that you, brought forth this revolution. I mean, you talked in a way that people weren't talking on the radio. You told the story in a way that people weren't before you showed up uh, in the scene. I think people, may, I mean, it's 25 years, but people kind of uh, uh, need to realize just how revolutionary that was.
0: Yeah. Like now there there are many, many radio hosts who, who sound the way I do, where you're just trying to talk in the way that you really talk in real yep. life. Um, and, uh, but yeah, that was, that was a new thing. And in fact, it was an, it was a hindrance into talking stations, into picking up our show in the States versus in, in Britain, um. I don't know. I don't know how the system works in Israel, but but um, but in the states, like you have to convince each radio, each public radio station to to take you, and some of them would just be like, they'd be like, "Well, is a good reporter. Like we like his stories on the news shows." But when are you going to get like a real host, like somebody <laughs> with a real authority? Like, and we would be like, "Sorry, this is this is all, you know. This is this is what we got." And um, and uh, and 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 it's funny too to see that um. I don't know. It's it's like that that part of it that, that 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 that's something that other people saw the utility of, like, saw that oh this sounds good, it feels good on the radio, like like we we like none of that. I didn't think that that was going to catch on. It's partly
1: because in. isn't it? You were pushing against what was a very sort of stuffy medium. Public radio it was very formal. I, I mean, I was obviously there in the nineties. Remember, it was it was kind of stiff backed and formal, and so you were pushing back against that, and now. Because of you, very part, you know, partly, largely because of you and this American Life, it has become almost the kind of normal way of fronting, particularly podcasts. It's a style now. Yeah. So I'm interested to, from your point of view, what is actually the difference, if there is one, left anymore between the grammar of a podcast and the grammar of radio
0: well on the news shows on public radio in the states and i think it's true on the bbc also like news presenters still sound like news presenters they they don't they don't talk in that style so it is is so it is still very different and they structure their stories differently they structure their stories in a much more traditional as they should <laughs> like here's what here's the most important thing you need to know that just happened today like that that comes first like and and i appreciate that i don't want them to to like go back to the beginning of the story and tell me from the beginning, like I want them to tell me what happened today. So, yeah. so, so I, so I think that you know, the, there's a limit to 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 what the revolution has done, and um, and you know, but in a certain style of podcast, um, you know, this this has taken hold. And then and then the, and then the other thing that happened is that at some point, you know, we we start we started a spinoff show, Serial, and that was an experiment, and the experiment of that. Honestly, like now, like when I even say what it was... It doesn't even sound like that could be true, but it, I swear it was true. We like the experiment of serial, and the reason why we called it serial, was was we were doing a documentary story and and it would start in one episode and then it would continue over seven or eight episodes until it was finally resolved. And we had never heard anybody do a documentary story that would stretch out the way that a television, you know, a bingeable TV show would do. And we honestly didn't know if people would listen. Like the way that that Sarah Koenig, the the host and Julie Snyder, the the producer, thought about it is like, We'll do this thing, and nobody's going to listen. So we can do whatever we want. And then at some point in the middle of it, it really caught on, and caught on in such in such a big way. Um, I feel like I feel like if anything, it's it's really serial that that announced to people. The scale the podcast could be, like like I don't even know the recent numbers, but the last time I looked a year or two ago, seventeen million people had downloaded every Whoa. episode of that first season, Whoa. which is the number of people who watched like the Game of Thrones finale like that's <laughs> that's like a crazy number and um and it just announced to the world, oh, there's a form where you can like tell a story and it'll stretch out the way like a bingeable TV show will and have the same feelings you'll listen for the same reasons you'll just want to find out like what happened you'll really care about the people in it. And um, versus the thing that we were reacting to, which was a kind of public broadcasting where people listened, I think, because they believed it would make them better people, you know. (laughs) And um, that's eat your greens, journal. Eat (laughs) your greens, yeah, exactly. And we felt like, well, well, our goal should be a kind of journalism where we give you everything you get from the eat your greens journalism, but it's, but you don't do it. You're not, you're doing it because you're entertained. Like, 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 you're doing it because you want to hear what happens next, or you, or you want to hear what happens to these people, and, um, and, and it's out for fun. And and not embarrassed to be out for fun, like that's not like a side product or something. Like we're holding our hand over, like that's its mission. And we just thought, like, well, you must be able to make something that does that, and you know, also is journalism, and you know, we'll investigate things, and we have fact checkers, and it's all true, and and we uncover stories that other people don't uncover, and get voices in there. Like so that was the that was the goal.
2: I want to. We're talking about the kind of beginnings, but I want to take you even further back, which is you at nineteen. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, half the mm. summer uh, working in NPR and half at the University of Maryland Hospital. You were pre-med. <laughs> yes. Uh, can yes. I can I take you back to that scene where you tell your Jewish parents that you're not going to become a doctor? Can you kind of tell <laughs> tell us how that unfolded?
0: If only it were one scene. Uh, that had to be repeated <laughs> many, many times over the course of like almost. I mean, my my parents were like middle class Jewish parents who grew up without a lot of money and they themselves struggled to like make it into the middle class and like, you know, and, uh, and they were very concerned about their children making money and they had like, and that was sort of like a bright kid who liked science. And they're like, well, you absolutely should be a doctor. And, and, and it was very confusing to them. And, um, and, and it took them some years, but to their credit, they came along and literally there was a, I mean, I, there was a, They, they throughout my twenties and early thirties, they constantly told me I was making a mistake, and and that there was still time to go back to med school. Um, Though sometimes for a
2: decade, they kept telling you that for a decade. The Jewish parents, you
0: need a decade is that's a small (laughs) interval for the Jewish parents.
2: That's nothing. I know. Okay. We were in the
0: desert for forty years. (laughs) Right. They were playing the long (laughs) game. Ten years. That's nothing. And and truthfully, like, it's funny. Like, just recently to, like, write speeches and stuff, I went back to some of my work from that time. And it's not good. Like, I can see how a parent hearing it would just be like, well, you don't have any talent. Like, why are you doing this? You can still be a doctor. And, um, yeah, like, like sometimes when I give speeches, I play something from my eighth year doing it, and it's terrible. And, like, you could be a surgeon in eight years, you know? And, um. And so it wasn't crazy. My mom finally gave up five years into this American life. So at that point, I'm 41 years old. And um, and and she called me after I was on television for the first time. I was on an American show called David Letterman, which was like a big, iconic, late night show here. And um, I had never been on TV before. And, um, and afterwards, she called me. And it was like half joking, but it was half serious. And she was like, okay, you won. You don't have to be a doctor. <laughs> this plays, by the way, to every radio
1: person's deepest anxiety, because it doesn't count until it's on television. So oh, you, my God. I know that as well. Yes, I know. Here's the thought I wanted to ask you, which is, Jonathan Sachs, who was chief rabbi in Britain, who has, since his death, has actually got a huge following for the podcast of his various talks. People listen to them all around the world now. Um, um, he, One of his observations was, that Jewish culture was an auditory culture, he said, right from the Shema with its injunction, hear, O Israel, and the ban on graven images. He says, when the rest of the world is a visual culture, Jews were an auditory culture. We're about hearing and listening. And I'm interested Hmm. to know the extent to which you think there's anything in that. Is this medium, radio, something that goes with the grain of your
0: upbringing and culture and so on? Wow. What a pretty thought. And how convenient for me, if it's true. <laughs> right. It's good for you. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I mean, it's funny. Growing up with the Jewish culture that I grew up with in the, I mean, I'm old, in the 60s and 70s in the United States, like Jewish culture meant like Broadway shows and Fiddler on the Roof and Barbra Streisand and 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 you know like Jews created a certain kind of comedy on television so and of course at the heart of that is something auditory but, but i i i to me that seems a little small like to me to me it's it's actually the desire to to entertain and envelop at the same time that um you know that you that you that you're trying to tell your story i i mean like when you go to a holocaust museum it's so designed like almost by hollywood you know what i mean to like to work on you like it's like it's machined by people who know how to get to you you know and your feelings and uh and so i like i think of that as being so much more central to uh Jewish culture than simple auditory experience. And in that way, I have to say, our show really conforms to that. Like, like our show does have, like, sort of the aesthetic values of, like, fit on the roof, you know what I mean? Like, we start off with, like, a funny story and then try to build up the stakes to something more serious um, until finally the story is about, like, the most serious things that it could be, like parents disappointing their children and children, you know, and parents trying to deal with their children not not marrying other Jews or not becoming the doctors they wish they'd been, you know?
2: <laughs> this, this is all leading us to uh, think that there's going to be This American Life, the musical, very soon. But um, <laughs> we, you know, you're we talking about Israel. And, uh, the episode you did here, uh, 2002, mm. uh, it's mm-hmm. called Give It to Them. Uh, by the way, if you listen to it today, what's terribly depressing about it is that nothing changed you could just press play on the episode right besides the fact that Ariel Sharon and Yasser Arafat are not part of it and yeah. it ends with you saying you could order the, order the tape of this episode it's 2002 <laughs> but besides that nothing is is changed you say there's something that i found that really speaks to and i think it's important for our listeners to kind of understand just how deep you go into you know the place that you you visit in this case it was israel and you say there when you live here, you talk about Israel, you split yourself in two. You have knowledge of violence and you decide at some level that it is not going to touch your life. I think it's very, very accurate to the way Israelis live. Can you tell us a little about what you were surprised by and what your thoughts, I mean, maybe this is a very general question, but what your thoughts are of Israel 20 years after this this episode?
0: I feel like I don't have profound thoughts about Israel. I mean, I, like, I have what I read on Haaretz. And, mm-hmm. you know, in, in the American news. Um, and so I don't want to try to offer insights about Israel um, at all. If anything, like in terms of like the, the way politics is going there, it seems like it's further along the path that the United States is setting down um, mm-hmm. with just the, the way it's divided. And um, and honestly, with the strength of, of the right wing, you know, and the way it's closing that is closed off like possibilities for the left. But um, I don't know. Like, like I, when I came, everything was new to me. Like, I remember being on the flight, and I had never heard anybody speak conversational Hebrew. I remember hearing somebody order a Coke in Hebrew, and I was like, "Whoa, that's crazy!" <laughs> <laughs> like, I had it never sounds heard, holy. <laughs> it just, I was like, "Oh wow!" Like, and, yeah, it was just like every part of it. And then. Um, you know, I just I had never been, and so I had all the, all the feelings that people had. There, there, was, there was one thing that somebody said to me that I think we put in the episode, though it's been so long since I've, I've, I've heard the episode, that I've thought about so many times since. Um, uh, he, he, just reading the news where, where, where they said, uh, they said Americans think that the problem between Israelis and Palestinians is that we just don't know each other. And if we were to sit down at a table and we would get to know each other and talk through what each of us needs and how each of us sees our futures, of course, we'll be able to come to some common understanding and make some common future. And I remember the person who said it said, this is a very Christian idea. He says, says, the fact is, we know the Arabs and they know us. We know the Palestinians and they know us. And and we, like we eat the same food, like we look the same, <laughs> like like everything's the same. And, and he said that's the problem is that we we know each other and we don't like each other. So he said, I think I'm not sure I'm getting the very end of the quote right, but I feel like oh yeah, I th- I, I don't know that was very um, perceptive about what Americans think of Israel.
2: You mentioned what is happening and how far <laughs> Israel is going uh, to the right, and I want to pull this back to talk about. Just kind of shift the lens back to the United States, because I think one of the more impressive things about uh, this American life is just how much empathy you have for the people that you talk with. And through you, the listeners as well are, are, are feeling the same way. But at the same time, American public discourse over the 20, past 25 years has become like the opposite of empathy, right? It's, it's really merciless. Do, do you despair at that? Does that make you, you know, look and say, but we've been doing something completely different for the past 25 years and so many people have been listening? Why didn't that kind of, I don't know, percolate into the rest of the the discourse?
0: Um I, I do Was that a convoluted that. question? To no, I totally understood that question. No, no, like I like I you know, I do, I do despair at, at the complete lack of empathy or the inability of of, of anybody to listen to anyone's point of view mm-hmm. that's different from their own sympathetically in this country right now. Like it's very, very rare and we're constantly looking for stories where people are trying to bridge the gap and it's so hard to find them, truthfully. And that's a really different thing than when we first went on the air twenty five years ago, and it was certainly very different than when I was a kid. And you know, Lyndon Johnson could pull, could pull together like Republicans and Democrats to to make the Great Society programs, which whatever you think of them, that was you know things were bipartisan. You know, they, like it was just politics was was just functioned in a different way. And I think you know some combination of. Um, Cable news and especially social media is just, just coarsened everything. So everybody's in their separate camps. And 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 I really think that journalism has not figured out a way to bridge the gap. Like I feel like it's like we're fighting a war without without weapons or a strategy to try to get people to listen and they don't listen and there's a ton of misinformation. And people don't care to hear the facts and are they're, like, they're casualties. Like people die in this in this misinformation war. You know what I mean? Like, like all the people who, who, who didn't believe the vaccines would save them and didn't get them and died. It's hundreds of thousands of Americans.
1: Uh, when you talk about the two camps not listening, I, I, I'm suspecting, but you'll know, that that is literally true in the sense of, I'm guessing your audience is blue state America, it's um you in the you could caricature it you know people who listen to public radio and eat at whole foods and vote democrat and get did wear masks and got the vaccine i'm i'm guessing that's a kind of tribe that you speak no, to. but tell no, me I'm, I'm
0: wrong no 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 fortunately like public radio like I, it's funny i haven't looked at the the numbers in the last few years but like throughout my entire time in public radio like the audience has been has been split between uh, people who identify as Democrats, people who identify as independents, and and people who identify as Republicans. And for a long time, like for Republicans, what public radio was, was if you lived in a red state, you couldn't get a good newspaper. You know what I mean? And so you would listen to public radio, and then occasionally there'd be something that you wouldn't agree that with politics out, but you knew you were getting kind of like, oh, here's what happened today with some depth to it. And so like people accepted it. And so fortunately, like, I I feel like our audience doesn't include people like that. And the podcast audience also, we somehow in in podcasting, we're just identified as a podcast show. Like there, there are people, um, there are people who, who don't think of us as a public radio show. I think lots of people actually. And, um, I remember when, um, when president Trump was elected, Zoe Chase, one of our reporters went to the deplorables ball. These were the, the sort of the online trolls who basically felt like they elected Donald Trump and, um. And uh, a very fun loving group, actually. And so at this party, like people would come up to Zoe and wow. be like, you know, like, I love your show, you know, like, you know, these right wing Trump supporters. Like, and, 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 uh, and like, truthfully, like, we really, like, we, treat them like anybody else on our show like they you know the zoe did stories about them back when trump was getting elected and very much trying to understand like who are you what are you trying to do why you know like why is this the way you, you know i feel like we're you know we're, we're we you know we have the advantage as a documentary show of just being able to say like yeah we want to just understand you and and go in and pe- i hope people feel like they get a fair shake and so in that way like i feel like we get a little bit of leeway that said i think generally um you know it, it, like it's it I don't believe that we're convincing anybody of anything anymore. And and I feel like when I was younger in journalism, I, I did think that that was possible. I didn't think it was common. Like like it's it, like I think I think none of us changes our opinion because of it's so rare. If you can think of like, did you ever change your opinion from like from you know on any big issue on abortion, the Middle crisis, like anything from something you read in the Guardian or like something you heard on the radio, like like what what article could possibly do that? You know that's not how our that's not how our political opinions form. So I think it's it's naive to think like, oh, as journalists, we like, we put something out in the world and, and it changes people's minds. So I did believe that when I was 20. Like, I don't believe that. Like the empirical evidence says otherwise. What's been interesting to me is something that I never understood or anticipated, which is you can change people's minds if you create a kind of um, virtual reality. What do you mean? Like, Like, you know, when Fox News will take up When Fox News and the right-wing media in our country all kind of move in lockstep to assert something about uh, voter fraud, you know, for example, through sheer repetition and through so many examples, like, I don't think a single journalist would be able to accomplish what, you know, what hundreds of people and, and people online and people repeating it, like, 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 I do think that journalism can can change the way people perceive an issue. But, but I think that you have to kind of have an army, you know what I mean? And, and you have to be in there every day fighting the fight. Um, and obviously like fact-based journalists are doing that as well. But, um, and, and, you know, and there's excellent fact-based journalism every day, but, um. But but I don't know. I never I never thought about it when I was a kid. That like oh no, the way that to actually change people's minds is to is to create something like Fox News, like that you'd just be on all the time and be pretty entertaining, like be pretty compelling. You know, like like say stuff that just gets you excited. You know what I mean? Like that's that's pretty. That's good. That's good entertainment values. Like they 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 know what they're doing. Like they're competent, and uh, like that that would be the thing that could change people's minds.
2: I, uh, I think we should lighten the moon with a little bit of David Sedaris. And I have to, this place where I confess <laughs> that uh, my favorite ever episode is uh, is really David Sedaris, The Americans in Paris. So my favorite oh. This American Life is actually not in America. Um, but there's this quote that kind of stuck in my mind uh, that you write about him. And you, you talk about this discrepancy is just sort of, he's very successful at this point or beginning to be very successful and he's a best-selling author. But he's kind of this walking around in, in France and kind of feeling like this nobody because no one talking this broken French. And you say this, I think for most people, uh, there's a normal balance that has to happen of believing that there is are somebody to believing that there are nobody. And I think that what happened to him is that the somebody side of that equation got crazily inflated. And so the nobody side had to hyperinflate to catch up. So we talked a lot. I hope we talked about I, I want to turn this on you and say, I mean, we know the somebody that you are. How do you balance that out with us with a nobody side?
0: I mostly feel like a nobody, like 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 <laughs> walking around. Nobody knows who I am and when i meet people it's i don't i'm not famous and i'm podcast famous like i'm not famous in the kind of way where like you know when i check in at the airport <laughs> they're like oh or like i can't like even at a restaurant in new york like we don't you know we, we wait for an hour and a half like everybody else you know <laughs> and, and and fortunately like the people who i work with and you know the people who i love will like, <laughs> give me no special difference <laughs> like so it, like it uh, you know I I feel I feel like and then and then, you know, and then I come to Israel and like when we do a public event, then I'll feel like a somebody at the public event. You know what I mean? But like the rest of the time, I feel like I'm going to be safely feeling like.
2: Come on. The head of our podcast department, when I said Ira Glass is coming on, he I think he had to he hyperventilated and said it's Orson Welles. So come on. I mean, I don't think it's that it's that simple, but okay. I'll I'll try and buy that answer.
0: But it's true. Like if like think <laughs> about what the daily life of anybody who's making a show is. It's exactly the same whether people know who you are. It's exactly the same in a way whether your show is successful or not. Do you know what I mean? Like it's still like a scramble to figure out like what are we putting in the air this week and the week after and the week after, and then you do the edit and it's not as good as you want it to be, and then you try to make it better. And you should we kill the story? No, let's try it again to make it better. Like my day is so exactly. And then there's, like... I do, like, eight or ten hours of mixed notes each week still. Like, I mean, other people do them, too. But, like, you know what I mean? Like, just going through and being, like, no, insert a pause of 0.3 seconds here and, like, start the music here. And, like... Do you know what I mean? Like, it's, it's just a... Like, it's a meticulous thing, making stuff. And, like... And it, you don't feel important. <laughs> like, you really don't. Like, if you're normal, you don't. Like, if, I mean, I think there's, like, people who are crazy people who just have a hyper inflated sense of themselves at all points. But if anything in a way that may or may not be very Jewish, but certainly is, like, rooted in who I was as a child. Like, I, I, I never, I just never think that.
1: I like that you're so intricately involved still. Um, I think that, I don't know how good that is for your mm-hmm. health and well-being, but I like that you're still doing that. I'm interested on the on the actual sort of fine-grained nature of the medium. You made this big change, and like you say, in the 1990s, you were thinking, I better get on with it, because someone else is going to do this, Quick, you know, if I don't do it, someone else will. Is this a medium that is ripe for another reinvention? Is there another turn of the wheel that I I know I'm not imagining, but because you thought of it once, can you see another way this medium could change?
0: That's a really interesting question. You mean podcasting or radio? Mm, Both, yeah. I mean... I mean, it's funny. I feel like e- e- in its current form, I feel like it's still kind of living up to its potential. You know, like the number of really great podcasts that use the medium well and where the writing is great and they really pick the story well and they plot it out right—like, it, are still pretty. It's still pretty rare. Like in a way, it's the same as television. Like, there's a ton of television, but like, and there's a, a ton of great television, but like, I, I don't, I don't know. The, the proportion of, like, stuff you want to watch to how much stuff there is. Um, I'm sorry, I'm digressing and and not giving you a perfectly usable quote here. Um, I mean, I, like, I, 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 th- I think... Um, I, the answer is I, I can't see what the next thing is. And if anything, like, I'm, I I would be excited if if this stage went better. Like, if there were more people making interesting stuff using using the formats that exist now you know i think it's a kind of golden age we're in now people said that about
1: tv when it was the wire and the sopranos and all that i think the audio medium speech radio i mean broadly broadly defined is in a kind of golden age because these kinds of long-form series there was nothing like it 25 30 years ago and even in the bbc where documentaries were good you know they really were good a long time ago this is something wholly new and it's um, Hmm. partly down to you. So I do get that, that we don't need a kind of reinvention because we're still on the first one.
2: But but it does beg the question because you set kind of the golden standard and now everyone... Has a podcast? I mean, you know. Oh my God! Barack Every- Obama and Bruce Springsteen. Why? And the Daily and <laughs> Why? <laughs> You're like talking I- to two Jews in London and in Tel Aviv that have a podcast together. Like everyone has a podcast. Do You is that the the vibe is like great? Everyone's joining the party that I started, or the vibe is like, guys, get off my cloud. Oh like, no, what that's is your- fine.
0: Everybody can join. Like it's, to me, it's really funny that Barack Obama like would have a podcast. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like, like I don't know. Like for me, even like the fact that David Remnick, like the editor of the New Yorker, who's an amazing editor, and like. Like such a wonderful writer and journalist, like in addition, decided that it was going to do a pot. He was going to host a radio show and a podcast. I just feel like, why do you have to do your job and then do my job too? Do you know what I mean? Like, like you know, like all these people, like like Prince Harry and Meghan, like they they are starting a podcast. Do you know what I mean? Like like, like why? Like like they seem like lovely people. Like I support them. I welcome them in as fellow fellow podcasters. Like the water's warm like come like like I like totally welcome <laughs> Cold them beer. Like, but like it's just like like it's just it seems to me it just seems like such a particular choice i actually got a chance to ask them this question why are you doing this and and to harry and Meghan. yeah and um and 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 they and they answered their answer they put it in different words but the way that i put it would put it is they really loved the uh, lack of adult supervision like like the, the like i think especially for him there's a feeling of of the way that his family story has been told by the mainstream press has been very disturbing for understandable reasons. And he's like, he really just likes that they could make something that they completely control and there's not a lot of bosses. There's no bosses, you know what I mean? And, and I think that, that there's something to that, you know, like they could just make the thing they want to make and it's, and it's so simple.
1: Yeah, I think uh, the big difference is that your podcasts and broadcasts are all about other people. You're asking questions of other people. But the Obamas and the Springsteens and the Harry and Megans, it's about them. And so that's why it's, in a way, it's not
0: the same business you're in. They're not coming into your business, I don't think. That's nice of you to say. I mean, I th- <laughs> I, to, to, to have Megan and Harry's credit, I do think they will be interviewing other people. But yeah, Obamas and Springsteens. Obamas and Springsteens had some interesting moments. There's one moment in in one of the early ones where they say this thing to each other where I was like, oh, that is so real. Where. where um, <laughs> where um, I think Obama says, because he's kind of the better talker of the two, where he says, Well, he's trying to explain to the audience, here's how we got close is well, like we met each other at some official thing and our wives were chatting and our wives really got close first. And he said, And, and he said that um, he kind of acknowledged like both of us are of a, of a weird type where, where like, we think that we should be the one to stand in front of a stadium of people and be the one talking. And he said that my wife, he said, like Obama said, like Michelle told me, like, you're both crazy people. <laughs> that you think that you're both crazy. And like, and there's really crazy stuff that drives that. And she says, but Bruce has done the work. You know what I mean? Like Bruce has really tried to figure it out. Like Bruce is right, he's like you should get to know him better because you need to do more like what he's done. Cause if you've read Bruce Springsteen's book, he really is like very introspective about what what in the world made me like this nutter. And um and he does such a good job. That book is so good. Um but anyway, like yeah, and I thought like that is completely real. I really believe that and I really appreciate it that they shared. What is really a pretty frank thing to say, to like maybe too frank. That's a very sincere project they're doing for God knows why.
2: Um, I I can't let you go without asking you because my day job or evening job is being the anchor of the evening news here in Israel. And it seems to me like when you started out, there were like the very clear... Authoritative voices, right? The three networks, all men, of course. Tom Brokaw and Peter mm-hmm. Jennings and Dan Rather, all men. Heaven forbid we'll let women do the news. Um, and 25 years later, like the authoritative voice is is sort of dissipating, right? I mean, what is authoritative? What is the voice? There's so many anchor men. There's so many channels, even anchor women. Could you have thought, like 25 years ago, that the person left standing would be actually the person who said, "I don't want to do the authoritative thing. I want to do the storytelling thing," of what I find interesting. Is that something that you kind of could have imagined?
0: No, absolutely not. No, I didn't think that we were going to win. Like, I didn't even see it as that kind of war. I just saw it as like, oh, we're making this little indie movie over here. And then, like, you know, the big Hollywood movies will continue to go. But but to be fair, like, the daily news still sounds like the news. Like, I'd be curious, like, how do you, when you perform on television, like, I mean, it's interesting because even on network television here on the news, um... It it does. It is more conversational than it used to be. If you see somebody like Anderson yep. Cooper, is much more conversational performer. But not everybody. Some of them are really yeah. corny. Sometimes I watch the TV news in the states. I was like, I can't believe that's how you say your lines. It's so corny. <laughs> it's so corny. And it would come. It would. <laughs> it would hit the heart better. You know, like if if you just said it. And and like mm-hmm. so, when you perform on television, like like what? How do you perform? Are do you it's talk to it? It it's is a, it's a very
2: different vibe than what we we're doing. It now. is, but it's a, also a different language, so that helps. But, but but you should come to Israel, watch the news, and then tell me. I will actually, if there's yeah, a
0: difference. when I'm there, yeah, and and wait, and and but you perform it in a more of a, like I'm presenting the news, right? Like you, yes. yeah, yeah, yes. and it would feel inappropriate to to be chattier. No, it's just a complete different. Person. Vibe, <laughs> person. it's a different person. <laughs> it's a different person. But even in in a country that's so famously that's my like,
2: evil twin on the really news. It's the evil twin. Yes. What, what,
0: but d- hang on, d- but Ira,
2: you're d-
1: saying you're surprised that people are still doing the formal Tom Brokaw thing.
0: I am because I think that actually, I mean, I think actually, like, I would think that most people in your job, not maybe not consciously, but unconsciously, feel the pressure to talk more like a normal person, and there definitely are people in television who do. Or who are capable of it and still perform the lines? I mean, it's hard. You're reading off a teleprompter. Shit is happening fast, and also some of the stuff that you're saying, there's no casual like performance of the thing you're saying. You know what I mean? Like to report yeah. a school shooting or to report, you know, a bomb going off in Tel Aviv. Like you know, just like you, like you, I don't know. Like and so and so, like it's it's it would be hard to be a a person. Um, but I also think, like, you know, the laws of—like, we didn't make the laws of broadcasting. We're just obeying them. Like, the laws of broadcasting mm-hmm. are anything gets through to you more, the more it sounds like somebody's really speaking. Like, it, more, it sounds like spoken language. Like, it just gets mm-hmm. to you more. Like, that's why often on, on traditional television news, the only moments that feel like they have human quality are the quotes. When you get to, like, a quote, you know, from, from some real person— um, so I'm like that. So sorry to get to my question. Like, so, so do you feel like you have to strike a balance between like talking the way you really talk and then talking in that formal kind of thing?
2: I think mostly it's formal, but there's a little bit, just a little bit of a human being wow. getting through the cracks. Just a little.
0: Do you, do you see her <laughs> as a character you, who, who you play your TV person? I don't know
2: if character, cause it's not acting, but it's a, di- it's, it is a different, it's, she's. Different. I mean,
0: him. me too. Yes. Can I say like like I'm working yeah. in a medium that's way more real and I'm really trying to simulate my actual personality as best I can. Oh, and yeah. I also am working a kind of story where, like, actually, if I can think of something personal to say about each other, about myself, sorry, then then I know it'll get through to people more. Like it's good on the radio to like actually if I can excavate any moment from my week that will be connected to something that could be interesting. Like I try to do it. But like even there, I feel like the person who I'm playing on the radio is not exactly who i am because because who i am is un is unedited and like and and like in a lot of ways way less interesting you know what i mean like like if you can compress down all the interesting things you can think in a week into an hour you can seem really like a really interesting person (laughs) whereas in real life like you know i'm cranky and like i don't know like i'm boring and i don't know like it's it's way like the the person who i am is like i like i think of the person who i am on the radio as me but definitely as like a much better version of me
1: i think it's really interesting you you both actually but even you use the word performance that it's a performance even Mm. when you're playing yourself and you're simulating your natural self so You know, and I I don't know how scripted those apparently unscripted intros are, but I'm guessing they're scripted. Oh, my God. Every word. Every word. But you deliver them as if this thought has just come to you at the spur of the moment. There's a little hesitation. And that's part of the sort of, I think there is now this sort of podcast speak, which is the, well, I'm going to do it like this. You throw (laughs) in the little hesitation.
0: (laughs) You know, and that's that. When you so say it that way, haunt. I feel horrible. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and I got to thinking, mm, maybe Ira does that. <laughs> <laughs> that's a very good invitation. No, not at all. Um, this has been wonderful, Ira Glass. Okay. We're hugely grateful to you coming on Unholy. And thank
0: you very much. Thanks so thank much. Thank you so I've much. I've enjoyed it. Was it was a pleasure. Thanks so much.
2: So that was our conversation with uh, Ira Glass, uh, one that we cherish, and uh, we hope to have him on again. We will be back very, very soon in September. Uh, In the meantime, enjoy the rest of your uh, summer, and we'll see you soon.
1: See you next time.
0: This podcast is brought to you by CyberAttacks Can Be Prevented. Checkpoint. You deserve the best security.